0: Support for Essential Tremors comes from the Big Ears Festival, celebrating 10 years with Los Lobos, Bill Frizzell, Edgar Meyer, and John Zorn. March 30th through April 2nd in Knoxville. BigEarsFestival.org This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time specializing in literary comics small press art books and great regional beer at eight bar in the back of the store come to 3620 falls road in hamden or go to atomicbooks.com atomic books literary finds for mutated minds
1: first of all it's just beautiful um and and it 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 really triggers the imagination it has this uh, you know sequence uh, you know it unfolds in this sequence of events, and um, the, um, it, it's very ritualistic, and, uh, it, you know, it's a transcendent piece of music. I don't know any other way to describe it.
0: This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Ashley Capps, the founder of the Big Airs Festival, an internationally lauded underground and experimental music gathering that happens every spring in Knoxville, Tennessee, has a long history of leading some of the most important underground music promotion in recent history. Starting his career while still an undergraduate at the University of Tennessee in the late 1970s, Capps went on to help found Bonnaroo a music festival in rural Tennessee under the auspices of his business, AC Entertainment, that earned Rolling Stone's ranking as one of the 50 Moments That Changed Rock and Roll, Festival of the Decade by Consequence of Sound, and among the 10 Best Festivals by GQ magazine. Big Ears has been similarly lauded, called a music festival with a rare vision by the New York Times, as well as by Rolling Stone, which wrote, put simply, Big Ears is an alternate universe, one where form and structure-defying acts can draw standing room crowds, and erudite, serious listeners from around the globe can compare notes. The next Big Ears Festival will take place on March 30th through April 2nd, and we're very proud to have established a partnership with them in which we'll be featuring artists playing this year's event monthly until the festival takes place. The first song Caps chose as being formative for him was Music for 18 Musicians, by Steve Reich.
1: You know, Music for 18 Musicians is, is a piece that uh, got under my skin immediately and it's, it's, never, it's never completely left. And, and I think, uh, first of all, it's just beautiful. Um, and and it, it it really triggers the imagination it has this you know sequence you know it unfolds in this sequence of events and um, the um, it, it's very ritualistic and uh, it, you know it's a transcendent piece of music I don't know any other way to describe it and uh, I it's it's one piece that I've had the great fortune of, hearing perform live on a number of occasions, and it never ceases to uh, completely transport me into another space and move me very deeply. And
2: uh, it sounds like uh, that you had uh, uh, a really early experience with it. That is, you know, you saw it pretty early on in its its life as a piece.
1: I did. I, um, you know, I was in New York City sometime in the mid-70s, and there was a a Steve Reich retrospective at the kitchen, as I recall, in Soho. And uh, I'd gotten there early, and I I was scoping things out. And in those days, there wasn't a lot going on in Soho during the day. You know, it was uh, a lot of warehouses and, uh, you know, mysterious spaces where, you know, there there were lofts and and studios and so on, but there wasn't, you know, it wasn't the the boutique, cafe, restaurant scene that it is these days. And um, I remember walking the streets of Soho and hearing Steve Reich and musicians rehearsing the piece, uh, you know, through the open window. It was, it was sometime in the spring and uh, the windows were open and I could hear the music, uh, you know, literally floating down the street. And it was... Uh, the streets were pretty deserted at those times it wasn't crowded and uh and that uh, that's an experience I'll never forget uh you know certainly watching it being performed later that evening was amazing too but but I think uh that that was an especially the unexpected nature of that experience and and hearing the music just uh you know literally um coming at you down the street, you know, and, you know, just kind of gently taking over the, uh, the, uh, atmosphere of everything was, uh, that was transcendent too.
2: Now, in, in the interest of, uh, full disclosure, I should mention that we've known each other for some years and that we're, we're both, uh, from, uh, East Tennessee. Um, how, how did, uh, um, you know, uh, at that time, a young man from East Tennessee, get connected with this, uh, this world of, uh, um, you know, at that time, pretty, uh, advanced or, you know, uh, relatively obscure composition in in New York.
1: That's the question that everyone always asks. And I I even ask myself, I, um, I don't know. I I listened to music, uh, from a very early age from, you know, really even before I remember, because my parents had photographs of me playing records on on this little uh, plastic red record player that only played 45s. And I would wake them up in the morning, uh, you know, playing music. And my father loved jazz. He traveled to New York a lot. Uh, his company had an office in the Empire State Building. and And he loved jazz. He collected some jazz records. So through him, I discovered you know, Duke Ellington and Miles Davis and, uh, you know, many of the great Gil Evans and his orchestra. I remember one of the records, the, the individualism of Gil Evans is a record that, uh, you know, really captured my attention at an early age. There was also like, you know, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass and uh, Ray Charles singing country and Western music. Uh, but, but the house was full of music. Dad also brought home Meet the Beatles uh, the day that it came out. Uh, so he was, he was an avid music fan himself, but, uh, you know, beyond that, I think, um, I just had this innate sense of curiosity and I was always, um, I, I I wondered where this music was coming from, you know, you know, what, you know, what the context of it was, what did it mean? And, and so for whatever reason, and I'll never really know this, it, uh, music became a major vehicle through which I explored the world. Um, and, and, you know, it became uh, something that I researched uh, and, and was uh, captivated by, uh, to an extraordinary degree. And so I always had my antennae out. Um, one of the first things I remember is actually Frank Zappa and and discovering um, not freak out, but absolutely free was the first one that I discovered. And the reason I discovered it was because at the local record store, it was on the shelf, but it had been, uh, it was one of those records that folded over and had been folded the wrong way. And it had this like picture of Zappa looking, you know, totally Zappa-esque. And it said, kill ugly radio. And um, I I, I don't know if you know that image, but uh, if you've got the record in your collection, it's there. And, uh, and I was like, wow, what's this? And, uh, and so, you know, I, I shoveled out, you know, the outrageous sum of maybe $1.99 or $2.49 or whatever LPs cost at that point and took it home and was suddenly, you know, immersed in this world of Frank Zappa. And, you know, that, I think that was my first, it's the first experience that I really recall of um, music as some sort of provocation. Uh, you know, music that was really pushing in, in all sorts of different directions and really, you know, challenging the listener uh, in, in unexpected ways. And, of course, Zappa was famous back in those days for always having the Edgar Varese quote about the present-day composer refusing to die. And, you know, I, I was wired so that my reaction to seeing that quote was, who's Edgar Varese? And back in those days, you could actually go to the library, and lo and behold, they had Edgar Varèse records. And uh, I, you know, even here in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I would check them out and take them home. And you know, you had, but there's so much more. You had like Rolling Stone magazine, where you had uh, Robert Palmer writing not only about rock and roll, but also writing about Ornette Coleman and and the the master musicians of Jujuca and Uh, Coltrane and Sun Ra and uh, I was curious about all of that and 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 so that that curiosity uh, really led me on all sorts of journeys it's uh, taking me literally all over the world it's ultimately uh, been something that I dedicated my life to and 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 created a livelihood around and uh, and it's still there today I uh, I'm I'm constantly on the lookout for for uh, great new music and and to see where where people are taking all of these ideas.
2: You've obviously taken that that curiosity about music um as a vocation way farther than I ever have. But uh, you know, I have a similar curiosity about music and always have and it's led me to keep doing this thing, for example. Um but You know, I remember as a younger person, especially thinking, this is something I'll probably grow out of, right? You know, because not that many people who are in their 60s or 70s are still tracking down weird records and, you know, listening to odd things that just aren't. Uh, Is that something that you ever thought about? Is This this is something that that is just probably something I'll grow out of?
1: I think my parents thought I would grow out of it or or at least hope that I would grow out of it. Um, I don't know that I ever really thought about it Um, in that sense. I will say that I never thought about it as a vocation, you know, when I was younger. Uh, It it was a passion, but it was not a career path. Uh, Interestingly enough, because I I think it's, if there is a, continual uninterrupted thread leading to a career in my life that is it
2: well and not to get too far ahead of any a narrative that we're uh, that we're sort of uh, uh, ad hoc constructing but uh, you've gone on to present uh, music for 18 musicians and, and other pieces by these composers as part of uh, big ears um, you know kind of bringing all this uh, discovery full circle.
1: You know, yeah. Tracing one thing back to uh, to music for eighteen musicians, um, you know, I I do think the uh, you know, for me at least, there's always been that uh, ritualistic, transcendent aspect of things where it was meant to be experienced by an audience. You know, it's a it, it's it's not a passive listening experience. It's like, you know, it it really brings people together in a, um, in, a in a really
0: Deep the second song Caps chose as essential to forming his sensibilities was Dogon A.D. by Julius Hemphill.
1: So uh, so the next song that I chose was Dogon AD by uh, Julius Hemphill, which uh, is another one of those pieces that uh, grabbed me from the very beginning, just absolutely grabbed me and would not let me go. And it's uh, a piece of music that I remember back in the, in the 70s, especially, and even in the early 80s, I would play sometimes over and over. Um, and I still play to this very day. It's a, uh, it's uh, you know that uh, that groove, uh, you know, laid down by uh, Philip Wilson and uh, Abdul Wadud, you know, who sadly just uh, left us. Um, but it, it's just such a a, a deep and powerful um, musical performance, and. I had listened to a lot of jazz. I was listening to a lot of the new jazz, the Art Ensemble of Chicago and Anthony Braxton and um you know certainly Albert Ayler and John Coltrane and Cecil Taylor and so on. But uh the Dogon AD piece um uh, it it was um it was just riveting and um and and really captured my imagination. It's also one of those pieces that made me um that especially um inspired me to to do some research like who were the dogon uh you know what what's dogon a d what does that mean and uh and it it actually through that led me on something of an ethnomusicology adventure so uh you know I discovered the uh, dogon records that uh, that French uh label okora um Issue back in the seventies, and then through that started discovering all sorts of uh, of this indigenous music from all over the world, uh, which was an adventure in and of itself. And um, and then uh, you know, Julius Hemphill was such a pivotal figure uh, for me during that time, and I I I remember along you know. pretty much around that time. I mean, it all blends together for me at this particular point, but there used to be a place down on the Bowery called the Tin Palace. And uh, I remember going to see Julius play a solo concert at the Tin Palace on a Sunday afternoon. And, uh, you know, being there and and seeing this master musician, uh, you know, really, really, uh, you know, someone that for me was on a very high artistic pedestal playing this concert for 20 people um, and you know and, and, and you know and essentially you know a bar uh, you know a small bar on a Sunday afternoon and uh, it, it was it was a riveting experience it was amazing being able to you know uh, talk with Julius and um, you know just experience the music in such an extraordinarily intimate environment I also think that experience opened up the idea for me of what was possible about presenting music. You know that that it you know it didn't always have to be in in a nightclub or you know most of my concert experiences were actually like in auditoriums or coliseums or something like that. At that particular point, uh, I was just starting to really discover you know, a lot of the club scene, uh, at, at, that particular point in my life. Um, and, um, so, so it, yes, it opened up, a, a a whole new world of possibilities, not just, uh, you know, in terms of the music, but also, um, in terms of, you know, thinking about presenting music and, and making those connections with people and, and turning people onto something that, uh, I felt like was so powerful and so deep and, and so rich.
0: You're listening to Essential Tremors. After the break, we'll hear more about our guest's essential songs. The final piece of music Caps chose as being crucial to him was Loudmouth by the Ramones.
1: Okay, uh, the Ramones. You know, what, what can we say about the Ramones? Uh, uh, there, there's so many. Uh, am I being politically correct to uh, uh, to say loudmouth? You know, let, let let's use loudmouth. But but you know, the Ramones. Um, if you were there, you know, the Ramones were like a, a complete shock. You know, they 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 they, they came out and. They emerged in the world of rock and roll, and in their sheer brashness and simplicity, which was so much so that it was outrageous, it was like a complete breath of fresh air and opened up a whole new world of possibilities for me. As, uh, you know, it's just like, and and it was funny, you know? It wasn't serious, it was funny, you know? It was so outrageous, so, you know, And, and, and I think, you know, that, 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 you know, unabashed sense of fun and, and again, disregard for convention, uh, and, 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 you know, what was supposed to be, uh, the right way of doing things at the time, uh, well, it, it just opened up a whole new world of possibilities. And I had all always been a rock and roll fan. I, you know, from my earliest days, I remember, uh, you know, I, my parents would take me to stay with my grandparents for a couple of weeks every summer, to get me out of their hair. And, uh, I had a, a, an uncle that was a few years younger than my mother and he had collected, uh, you know, a lot of 45. So there were like, you know, Chuck Berry, Maybelline and, uh, you know, Elvis 45. So I've still got them, you know, of, uh, uh, Heartbreak Hotel and all shook up and, you know, Carl Perkins, 45s and so on. And, and so I, I, I discovered rock and roll then. Uh, I had cousins who turned me on to James Brown and actually took me to a James Brown concert at the age of eight when they were babysitting me, uh, which I'll never forget because that was the early 1960s and going to a James Brown concert at that particular time uh, as a white person was a, a you know a revelatory experience it was an amazing experience and and so to me there were never any uh, divisions you know you know I, I you know I, I never understood why anyone would not listen to James Brown and the Beach Boys and Duke Ellington and Miles Davis and you know you know all sorts of other things it, it, it was all just music and it was all, had a lot to recommend it and a lot to enjoy about it. And um, and so, um, you know, the Ramones were, you know, came along in the 1970s. They definitely were a reset for uh, a lot of the world of rock and roll. And they were right there for me in the same scene as Steve Reich and Julius Hemphill. And, uh, you know, we would literally visit New York and... You know, go to the kitchen, go to Danceteria, go to the Squat Theater, uh, go to the Village Vanguard, go to CBGB's. Um, you know, it, it, was, uh, it was what a music fad did when they went to New York. And um, that was the heart and soul of it. And, and, you know, for me, and the Ramones were just, you know, so outrageous and so captivating. Those songs were so catchy. You know, so stupidly catchy, but 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 also uh, it, you know exuberantly. You know, they they had a transcendence to them that that was the kind of transcendence that I was looking for in other music too. It just completely sucked you in to their orbit, and and of course you know around them there there were so many other uh, there was so much other great music happening with. Richard Hell and Television, Patti Smith and Talking Heads, and so that that whole scene. But you know, I I think it was the Ramones for me that that was um, you know the first moment where I was like, oh my God, what's going on here? You know, and uh, and I know you and a lot of other people felt the same way, or at least a lot of people in our orbit. I don't know if you did, but um, but that was uh, it, you know in their own way. It was kind of a wake up call uh, and and a wake up call to like, you know, what was possible. You know, I can't imagine how many bands were formed because people were like, wow, if they could get away with this, I could get away with that. And uh, and that's an inspiration. That's an important inspiration, I think, in the world of art uh, and music is when when somebody just opens up a door that says, hey, maybe you could do this, too and um and that's very exciting to me to this day and it's it's also part of the ethos that I hope that we capture at big ears uh it's one of the reasons that I formed a nonprofit organization to uh to support the festival but also to reach out into the community and and to reach uh you know younger younger people or or you know other artists who uh who wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity of the means to uh to hear a lot of this music live and in person, but to uh, open up the potential of of making some sort of connection there and finding the uh, the inspiration and the uh, the uh, the motivation to uh, you know to do more of what they do and to you know it, it's an affirmation, it's encouragement, it's inspiration, um, it, and in in being that it. Uh, you know, in the words of Patti Smith, it opens up a sea of possibilities. And uh, that's that's the most exciting thing about the festival to me is that, uh, that sea of possibilities.
2: You said something uh, bef- when we were talking uh, right before we started recording that um, struck me. And I'm not going to get your wording exactly right. But the idea, I think, is important, which is um, regarding, I think, seeing the Ramones, which is sort of seeing them and thinking... This is great, but I don't want to like let's bring that scene back here right like this is great but but why can't that happen here? And I think that that probably has something to do with uh, with with part of what you've created.
1: That's a really interesting point. Um, and it's it's something that I've often thought about because uh, there was a there have been several pivotal points in my um, in my career as you put it where I, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And, um, and, and you know, I, I, I was kind of at a crossroads. And one of the most logical crossroads was to go to work for somebody else, which inevitably meant moving to another city. And, you know, the logical city would have been New York or maybe LA, uh, you know, maybe Nashville. Uh, but back in those days, Nashville for me, at least, wasn't quite as attractive as it probably should have been. Um, but um, the, um, you know, so, so there was always that impulse to just go where these scenes already existed and see what kind of contribution you could make to that scene, which I think is always valid. And I had the great fortune because of my father's connection to New York and uh, because of a number of friends, that I was able to visit New York a lot, you know? Not because I had a lot of money, but just because I had a lot of access. And, um, and so through that, you know, I've gotten to this point where I know New York really well. You know, I, in some ways I, I feel like I know New York better than some of my friends who live there. And, uh, and I even go to more concerts in New York than they do. Uh, because, you know, sometimes New Yorkers have a, a tendency to hunker down and, and not go out that much. And when I go to New York, I go there because I want to go out. And, um, and, and so I've, I've had the luxury in many ways of, uh, of both worlds. But, um, but ultimately, my choice was, you know, I, it, it comes back to, you know, sitting in, in the room with your friends during high school and uh, saying, "Hey, have you heard this? Or check out this song on this new record," uh, you know, and and it was the desire to to share these, you know, for me, amazing experiences uh, with an audience that wasn't otherwise necessarily going to have the opportunity to experience them, and uh, and that was the big turn on, you know, uh, it, and and Knoxville back in those days was basically table rasa, you know. Uh, all all of the big rock concert, not all of the big rock concerts, but many of the big rock concerts would come through town. Um, but but aside from the big rock concerts coming through town, uh, any other scene was very small to non-existent. You know, even the whole idea of doing uh, jazz and rock concerts at these two historic theaters downtown, which were on the verge of being torn down. Uh, you know, and, and weren't really being utilized for live performances, uh, that, that was actually a, a radical move um, uh, back in the day. I didn't appreciate how radical it was when I actually did it. Uh, I was just looking for a place to, to do a concert. And uh, fortunately, uh, a group of people had, a, had uh, taken it upon themselves to, to uh, try to save these venues that were otherwise slated to be demolished. And so that kind of went hand in hand. They wanted to save the venue, and I wanted to use the venue, and um, and and so um, you know that that was uh, that was an interesting parallel uh, to to all of this as well. But uh, but you know to me the turn on was always um, well there were two, and, and one of them I could have done anywhere, which is you know I love working with artist whose work moves me, and that I respect, and if I feel like I can in some way make a contribution to them being able to present that work as they wish to present it, that is a very fulfilling thing. And then, you know, being able to do it in essentially my hometown, or in a region that, uh, you know, hasn't traditionally had a lot of these scenes uh, before is, you know, a totally different kind of reward, but it's, uh, you know, very, uh, very fulfilling for me, and I'm, I'm very, I'm very proud of that, and, and out of that, the, um, you know, we've actually had a city here that has been uh, transformed, and, uh, uh, you know, not all of the transformation has been because of concerts and events, but a lot of it has been. Because you know, as things evolved over the years, the Tennessee Theater and the Bijou Theater bring uh, you know several hundred thousand people a year down to our downtown, which was a ghost town a mere twenty-five or thirty years ago. And all of those people coming downtown support restaurants and businesses, and and um, you know um, have have really um, helped create a community. Uh, that uh, that the arts are a very vital part of, and um, and and that's also uh, something that I, I find very um, inspirational and, uh, these days, and in, in terms of uh, the work that we do, because I think building building commu- you know, using culture to build community, very obvious to a lot of us, but uh, you know, it, it's often. Either taken for granted or even slighted in in many uh, many instances, but it can genuinely be a, a, a transformative thing for for the community in which it happens. And I feel like we've seen that in Knoxville, and it's uh, it's been a beautiful thing. So, you know, many times people look at uh, you know when we anna- it, almost happens every year. It's less as the years progress, but you know when we've announced the Big years lineup. Um, it's often the case that people are like, oh my God, Knoxville, Tennessee, what is this doing in Knoxville? I don't want to go there. Why would I go there? This shouldn't be there. This should be, you know, over, you know, any number of other cities or, or and, uh, but as people have taken the leap and said, well, you know, I'll go check it out anyway. Uh, and then they get here and they're like, wow, that's a cool town. And, uh, and, and so they, they've started to, you know, there's still this historic character uh, it's still walkable it, it's it's got a, a, a lot of the, the the great character of a small town along with all of these cultural amenities you know these great theaters these great churches and places that we're able to use for venues and um, and that's been um, the, the, that's been you know the cherry on top uh, of this whole experience for me
0: This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.